introduce you to Jorge, who is a active and passive full-time multifamily real estate investor. Um, he actually has 1,720 doors, which is amazing as a general partner, the GP side. And on top of that, he has over 1,400 plus doors on the LP limited partner side. I'm glad to introduce him here. He is also a C the CEO of Elevate Commercial Investment Group, and also the owner of a construction company, JNT Construction, that focuses on helping multifamily investors with their full renovations, and he's based out of Dallas. Welcome to the show, Jorge. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm glad you're here. So yeah, you know, it's nice to meet you and, you know, uh, finally get to talk to you. I seen you've done a lot of podcast shows. Uh, you've been around and you've been sharing your experiences and providing a lot of value to a lot of listeners. So I'm glad to have you on our show. Tell us more about yourself. Um, yeah, so I've been investing in real estate for about 15 years now. Um, started in the single family, then kind of worked my way up to small multifamily, um, really started doing a lot of, uh, fix and flips and wholesales. Um, that's when I decided to open the construction company to help scale. Um, you know, had trouble finding good contractors. So decided to bring it in house. Um, and, and it worked, we, we were cranking them out. Um, and then about four years ago, I was introduced to multifamily syndications and uh, kind of blew my mind because the the scale was instant. You know, one property, 100 plus units. Um, so I really was was drawn to to multifamily in general. Um, started uh, really looking into it, gaining the knowledge. Um, and then decided to put all my focus towards multifamily. I stopped doing single family altogether. And that's where I'm at now. Very nice. I think a lot of people go through that um, step by step, you know, stone and like going through single families, going to small multi unit vesting and then you know, slowly trying to jump into bigger multi-units. It's hard to go from you know, just starting real estate as a new investor to go to a hundred unit building, right? And you went the construction route too. You brought construction in-house, which is a lot of work as well, a lot of fun. And of course, you know, uh, on TV, they make it look really good and really fun. But to understand the actual hard work behind that and the um, people management, process management, fulfillment, and uh, timelines and permitting and everything, it becomes a huge nightmare in a sense because there's so many parts of real estate. Which one is the best one to focus on? And it, it gets tough and I see you smiling and I, I know that like, you went through the headache. I, yeah, I like the fact that you said, you know, on TV, they make it seem all those DIY um, shows. I mean, it, it's easy, right? It just take, you know, yeah. it's done. That's it. <laughs> yep. And even right now in the Bay Area, the, the permitting process, the COVID, the um, timelines, things take like three months to even get to permits, uh, even doing your applications. Appointment can take over three to four months unless you have really good connections or have really good um, business partners who can get you through the door faster. It's almost impossible now. And there's so many shutdowns, right? And yeah. especially in construction world too, a lot of workers aren't really working and you don't want to really work with a lot of workers at the same time. And you're trying to do a project and you're trying to stay within a budget too. And even ordering right now, there's so many parts that are getting delayed, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've, we've been able to, you know, work on our projects throughout this whole pandemic, but 
there has been some some hurdles, like you said. Um, you know, appliances were uh, there was delays on appliances for a while. Uh, new construction now uh, that's a whole other. You know, lumber pricing has gone up like crazy. So, um, luckily, we've been able to work through it and and take precautions and. Um, we've been able to keep the projects moving. So like what made you jump from going to single family to multi-units to going to construction and then going to syndication? Like how did you decide to go through those hurdles? Was it just as you go along and figure it out? Pretty much, you know, I, I would like to say that, you know, that I had that vision. from the beginning. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but I didn't, you know, I just, I knew I wanted to start my own business. I knew that I liked real estate investing. Um, and then things kind of just happened as it went. You know, I knew I wanted to scale the single families. And if I brought in that construction in-house, that was really going to help. Um, so I did that. And then, um, you know, I had gotten to a point where I just felt like I was grinding so much and, and so involved in the day-to-day. -day and it was from one transaction to the next transaction. Um, that's why when I got introduced to multifamily, it blew my mind. And, you know, right away I knew that that's where I wanted to be. And, um, that's what I've been focused on since. I'm glad to hear that too, because yes, yeah, I think a lot of people are just, you know, generalizing, like everyone starts single family just because it's easier. It might be cheaper price point and because you just, it's simpler, right? Going to multifamily has a little more complexity, but in actuality, it's not too much more complex. And at the same time, it becomes simpler because you can start scaling who, you know, I would not want to buy like a hundred single family homes and deal with a hundred of everything rather than buying one multi-unit and you might start with a two unit four unit and jump up to 16 and hundreds right but the fact of scalability makes it so much easier when you go into multi-units in dealing with single properties that have multiple units multiple tenants and things like that but over time it becomes so much easier right as a cost perspective absolutely um and you know i think the the bigger you go first is actually better um i don't think you need to start with the two to four units or even the 30 to 40 units. Um, I think the 80 plus units, maybe even a hundred plus units is easier than those. That's true. Less liability too. And I think one thing, um, some people, investors mentioned, for example, if you had a hundred units, one unit vacated or 10 units vacated, that's only one to 10%. But if you had a two unit building, one, per, one unit vacated, that's 50%. And that becomes where the scalability helps so much easier in terms of you know, your financials and your vacancy factor, right? Yeah. I mean, one large issue, you know, you've got one sewer line that's broken or you've got to replace a roof on a small property that's massive. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. And I think it comes down to like education and mindset, like the education part of it. Of course, not all the syndicators out there want to talk about how great syndication is and how much money you make. And they don't, not everyone wants you to become a syndicator. And even then, if you do want to become a syndicator and they're coaching and teaching, it's not always easy because the next hurdle is the mindset to actually get there. It's just say, Hey, I can do this. I can go from a skip the single family, skip the multi skip the experience. I can just build into a syndication mindset experience, a big investor mindset. It's not easy to overcome upfront without a real mentor or coach to guide you through that, all the hurdles to get there, right? I agree. I agree. A lot, a lot of this is mindset. Just, um, you know, the fact that you're dealing with 
really large numbers in, in multifamily. Um, and just the fact that you're buying such a large property, um, a lot of it is mindset. A lot of it is just being past that and, and um, knowing that you can do it and having confidence. Yeah, and you don't always have to be exactly in your area. It is nice, but for example, in the Bay Area alone, San Francisco, you know, single families can cost one to two or three million, right, for single family. But for a million dollars, you might be able to buy a twenty unit or even something bigger in a different state, and then think of it that way as a starting point. But you do need to build your core four, core four and do a lot of research upfront to find them and uh, vet them in really well. But the difference is, hey, do you really want a one unit that makes maybe four or five, six thousand a month rent, or do you want a twenty unit or a fifty unit, right, that can generate more and have less risk in reality, right? Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. I mean, uh, that's a, a whole other mindset thing too. You know, being open to not going outside of your your own backyard, um, and I think that goes for the passive and the active investors. Um, you just you got to be careful. You got to know what you're doing, have a system in place, um, do your research. But um, I know once we started going outside of I'm in Dallas, which is a great market, but it's also very hot and um, hard to find good deals in. So uh, we do own here and we will continue to to find properties here. But, um, you know, we really started scaling once we were able to um get past that and be able to invest in other areas what made you exactly jump into uh, going to multi-units you said it blew your mind when you saw the multi-units but what part of it blew your mind um you know just the fact that i had been working so hard to to scale and 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 do um lots of units and and um the first thing i the reason i set out this path was to build generational type wealth. And I really hadn't done that. You know, I had, I had made um, good money and, and, and whatnot, but I, I wasn't building a portfolio of properties. Um, what I was mainly doing was fix and flips, um, some development properties, but selling them right away. Um, so that's what kind of clicked. I was like, okay, well, this, you know, here I can really start building a strong portfolio and, and have the cash flow and have the equity building up and um, really get to where I want to be. I think you said a great keyword, and I think a lot of people don't think about that is how do I create generational wealth? real generational wealth. It is not through fix and flips. Honestly, it's not. That's hard labor, hard work. It is, you know, thinking bigger and thinking about scalability and how to take multi-unit investing the bigger the better um, as you go but how to really build it up and why that matters but that really creates real passive income real equity real capex which uh depreciation right and that opportunity with real estate and taxation benefits from you know of course talk to your cpa but at the same time knowing those factors there's so many layers of real estate investing that you can actually utilize to grow generational wealth and the fact that it can become active or passive at a bigger scale than fix and flips, um, house hacks, other uh, smaller opportunities, even stock portfolio, right? This creates real passive income and the ability to scale as you grow and to take that money and reinvest it over and over and 1031 exchange it, if you, if you can, 
creates huge generational wealth. That's why you see the biggest investors are all doing that. But in the mindset of education, I don't. There's not like a ton of promotion about how do you become an investor, a multi-unit invest, family investor, a syndicator, and build up real generational wealth. Out, you know, it's not really out there fully. To, you have to go find it, right? But that's the opportunity. You got to find it. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. I mean, I, I always say that, that it's it's pretty frustrating that um, our in our school systems, we're not taught some of these things. I mean, it's so crucial. Uh, a lot of it is, I mean, the tax benefits alone has been a huge game changer for me. Um, and it's just unbelievable that we're not taught that growing up, you know? Yeah, I think that's one of the supporting parts about education in uh, in school system that you're not really learning f uh, true financial literacy. And I see I see Will Smith talk about that too. Like, how come we're not teaching people how to really utilize money in the society, right? And how to, to invest in how why it matters and what the differences are. There's no sh courses and structures that guide you through everything easily to say, hey, at least I have a good understanding of basic economics and how to utilize in the different opportunities that are available, and then take it at your own risk, right? right. I wish it was there, and I hope you know, I'm sure you're teaching your kids. I'm you know I'm teaching my kids. We're talking about it as a baby. We're already really reading a lot about real estate, right? <laughs> and investing. And I, I know some syndicators are actually buying multifamily investment properties for the kids. So day one, the kids are already getting passive income and they're saving for college. And when you graduate college, you can choose what you want to do with that multifamily investment. Yeah, no, I mean, it's definitely in my plans to, to do something similar um, and definitely teach them, you know, as, as they grow up, what to do with money and, and the importance of it and, and whatnot. Yeah, I think that matters a lot. And I think one thing like so I saw from Brandon Turner from Bigger Pockets that, you know, he bought for his kids, right? So like something for me and my family is like I'm utilizing the kids, you know, red egg money and all that money that they put. And I'm just putting it straight into investing in syndications and building that passive income and active income, right? And yep. like very, very projection at 18, you're going to be able to pay for college easily and then any college you want and just keep building it up. Yeah. That's the fun part about it. So like why did you, why did you get into construction, um <laughs> good question no um like i mentioned before you know it, it was really i started it to just scale the the investments and then um it, it kind of took off on its own and became something a little more than that uh, you know i think uh once i decided to start taking uh clients other than myself right um and I had the the mindset of an investor um, that really made sense for the clients that were investors. Um, and then that kind of just started uh, taking off as well. So, um, you know, I didn't really plan to grow the construction company to where it is right now, but um, uh, I'm not upset about it. <laughs> I think one thing too, right now, if you look at it, um, the construction people are the rock stars right now. They're the most needed people, not even the real estate agents or just sales alone. Construction people are the ones who are heavily being utilized. And I think one thing is that there's so much work to be done out there. Everyone wants to be in real estate. Everyone wants to make money. The hard part for contractors, though, is dealing with everything, the permitting, the you know cost, all the, um, the people, the clientele, right, and then the workers, and then also COVID. But at the same time, there's so much opportunity. And of course, on TV, you see all these contractors making, you know, huge remodels and like beautiful before and after. It looks like crap. It looks like, and they make millions of dollars, right? It's that easy, you know? <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it, it's definitely been a journey. Um, yeah, owning a construction company is not easy. Uh, 
you know, it's not, it's been 11 years since I decided to, to open the construction company. And, um, you know, just in the last year or two is when it's finally really, really clicked. I've got all the systems and processes in place. I've got a good team. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, there was a lot of, uh, learn learning going on throughout the years. Yeah. I think it, it's definitely, you know, admirable too because i know for for a lot of contractors i work with i know a lot of them are having a harder time right now because there's like i can do the work but the people keep leaving like the turnover rate is so high because people don't want to do being construction it's so hard labor they don't want to be in it they want to do something else they may be you know other different um businesses right and just getting tougher for that and so they keep a small crew but like to really grow a big crew or to do multiple projects and do on a really good fast timeline is really difficult it is if you don't have the the team for sure. Yeah, yeah and keeping the team happy because of course a lot of other contractors are bidding them up too. Like, hey, come do my plumbing, come do my work, and I'll pay you more and just keep paying more. So those guys are just running around trying to get, of course, for themselves, making more money for their family. Understandably, so yeah, that's a challenge, you know, right? It's it's not that the, you know mo- most crews they just want to know that they've got. Uh, consistent money coming in and that they're working for a company that they can trust because there's, there's so many, I hate saying this, but there's so many bad ones out there, bad contractors uh, that don't pay their, their workers and kind of give them run around. So we, that's never been us. We've always been hundred percent um, with our team and, and, you know, we're always paying them no matter what. Um, so I think that's helped keep um, everybody around. That's a good thing too. I know when you have a really good strong crew and you have that culture and they believe and they're, they know they're getting paid and taken care of and it's part, become part of family. It's the most important. You see guys in the Bay area, like one guy, he's a great guy. He's been doing it for 20 plus years, but he's doing seven day flips every single property. Now that's it's crazy, right? Yeah. You can do a flip in seven days. He goes, and he's done like 40, 50 flips this year or, or more. Yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing. Because with permits, there's no way. <laughs> yeah, it must be all cosmetic fixers and just like, you know, fully blow it out really quick and make it just look really pretty. So that's yeah. fun though. And, uh, you know, he's, he's making a really great name and doing a lot of great work. So I, I see that. And, you know, right now you guys mentioned, um, you guys are investing in real estate in Dallas and also in other areas such as um, Oklahoma, right? Any other yeah. places? Um, yeah, we just closed one in South Dakota and closing on another one there in South Dakota. Um and then we're looking at deals in Georgia, um, Tennessee. I mean, we're, you know, the landlord friendly states and um, we're pretty much open to, to anywhere we can find a deal. And how did you come about, about like, you know, no, choosing these markets, even though you're open to deals, but how do you, cho- how did you just, you know, land on those markets? Um, you know, one is, first thing is, is it landlord friendly? Um and then the second thing is kind of digging into the certain city and, and areas within that city, uh, looking at the metrics and uh, the demographics. And then once we pretty much check the box, each box, then um, it makes it to our list. Like, okay, you know, this is a city that we feel comfortable um, investing in. I think one of the hard parts about that uh, for any investor is, okay, well, am I doing it myself? Am I, do I have a team there and how do I build a team in any different city? And if you're, you know, as an active investor, you're, you know, cross-referencing multiple cities uh, and states and 
finding the opportunities, but at the same time, do you have core four in every area or do you, do you find it right after you find the property? And how do you do that in a quick timeline to actually get the property too? Um, yeah, there's a lot there. Let me see. <laughs> we love having somebody boots on the ground. Um, that's hundred percent ideal. If we've got, um, even if they're not experienced and they're just somebody that, um, wants to gain the experience and, and can just be our, our eyes, um, on a constant basis. Um, and how we have that is, is we do a ton of networking, you know, I'm, um, I pretty much have somebody in, in every major city that I I think I can call and they'll be uh, good to go if I had a project. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's pretty crucial. Um, and then you, you've got to go out there and you've got to get a feeling for, for the area, too. Um, but, yeah, boots on the ground helps 100 percent. Okay. And for example, you get boots on the ground, you find an investment property, you reach out to them, you have them take a look at it and say, Hey, it actually looks like a good property. It actually seems like it makes sense. You do your due diligence, come fly over, meet me, run the numbers, talk to the everyone. Um, and then maybe at the same time, build your core four there while you're planning it out and, you know, inspecting the property. And if all the numbers make sense and everything's actually true as it's, they say it is, then you guys um, maybe do a LOI and, and in the same interim and then um, try to acquire the property, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, you broke it down pretty well. Okay. Seems like it, but even then just that aspect alone is a lot of work, you know, to actually get it done. Let me see. Sorry. It is. I mean, look, we, we have maybe five sets of eyes that go through underwriting before it even um, makes it in front of me. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's a lot to get it to that point for sure. Nice. Yeah, I believe so too. I think uh, having really good um, people to help analyze it before you even do, and that's great that you have you know five five sets of eyes to help um, re really take a look at it because you have different perspective. People live in different markets; they might see different things about it. They might know different things about the property or the area, and just having that alone um, gives you way more um, reassurance that, hey, what I'm looking at actually looks like it's you know makes sense and we should actually think about going for it. So once you guys go for a property, what do you guys do? So like, hey, you guys, um, like how's that process work? When we, sorry, I said again. So for example, let's say, okay, I've identified a property, right? And what's the next steps for you guys? Um, Like starting from the beginning? Yeah. Yeah, one would be some high level underwriting, uh, see if it passes um, on a high level, you know, not not digging into the financials and everything, just kind of, okay, what's the average rent now? What, uh, what's the market rent? Uh, what's the price per door? What's the going in cap? Um, and if that looks promising, then we take all the data, put it into our underwriting, um, see what the returns are looking like for the investors. Um, we pull cold star reports to verify things, you know, to, to verify the rental comps, the, uh, going cap rate in that area. Um, whatever we can pull from there, you know, you pull uh, city data from there too. Um, then we start, you know, if it still looks good, then we like, 
next step is we dig in even further, then we'll maybe call some of the comps and verify. Um, I'm hoping you can't hear my dog, but. <laughs> That's fine. It's really, it's really light. All right. Um, so yeah, we'll verify more more of the the data that we pulled from Coldstar or from whoever or from the broker um, to the point where eventually we're going to go visit, set up a property tour, and um, confirm several different things. You know, at that point we'll we'll secret shop some of the comps. We'll uh, obviously check out the area and see the crime and. Make sure it's it's a good area, um, and uh, if everything was good there, then we'll submit our LOI and hopefully get it accepted. Um, if it gets accepted, then usually we try to work in some time to start the due diligence before the PSA gets finalized. Um, so we'll start digging in. We do very detailed and thorough um, due diligence. And um, depending on what we find there, we may go back and negotiate the price or not. And then um, raise the equity in between that and close on the deal. It's a lot of work, right? <laughs> Sounds easy, but it's not, that's not, that's not easy at all. Uh, I think that, you know, yeah, you can look at a property, you can do your comps, your analysis, talk to people. That's the not difficult part, but that's just part of your light due diligence, running numbers. The hard part starts getting when you start actually doing your LOI and negotiating and doing the real due diligence of every unit, every part of the property, all the information, the limited information they probably will have for you. Because it's you know usually buying from a, maybe a small mom and pop or not like an institutional investor, so you're doing more work due diligence to make sure, and then raising equity. Some people are great at it, but it can be a lot of work. Some people raise in twelve hours. Some people raise in two years. It just um, really building that network, right? So I think a part of investing is really as an investor, you're gonna build a you're trying to do multiple fronts. One's marketing and building a real strong network so you can raise capital equity to purchase a property. The other part of it is using real estate knowledge, um, boots on the ground, and then building that side out of the business to go find and acquire property. But we're talking about too with one of my other syndicator friends, it's a lot of work to do both sides of it at the same time if you're one person. So you actually need a team to do this and you need to find a strong team to do that. And because which markets are you going to look at? And if you have multiple properties in different markets, how do you choose which one? And how do you build the boots on the ground for each of them? And then how do you actually go see the properties and then acquire it? It can become quite expensive. And if you don't even win it at the end of it, and you just spend a lot of money for your due diligence. So that yep. gets, um, that's becomes the most biggest challenge for newer investors to start. I think one way is to start first, maybe become a limited partner and start learning the markets, start investing to other syndications, learning about these syndicators, investors, um, and watching your portfolio and how it grows first, or becoming an active investor and um, actively investing in smaller properties up front if you're doing it yourself. But in general, it is better probably to um, you know start investing in bigger scalability because do you choose to buy use your money to buy one property or do you put that money into a investment in syndication, right? And even as a limited partner, the limited partner actually can make more money than buying it yourself. Like for example, the Bay Area, if you're buying at a cap rate of three and a half to maybe, maybe even five, and you're getting upside in equity and you know it's long term, but dealing with rent control and everything, the money could be there, but it's a lot of work to get there. But if you go outside, the opportunity could be eight percent plus, right? 
Mm-hmm. And then what do you choose? Some people say, I feel comfortable. I'll take the three and a half to 5% and I'll, I'll wait for the equity to grow and I'll grow it up myself. But that's a lot of you know equity down payment to put into that one property, right? It might be one to four or five to 16. Or you take the same money, you just doubled it by putting it into an investment. But now the opposite opportunity is you have to trust the operators. You have to trust that they're going to do what they say and you have to vet them really carefully. And when you're vetting them, you got to understand their past history, the opportunities, their numbers, and their payout structures. And look, it's a different kind of due diligence. But the fact is, if you're saying, hey, you're giving me a preferred of 8% plus and the opportunity for IRR could be like 15% plus, for example, then wouldn't you want to take that opportunity? At least start with a minimum investment for each syndicator and try a couple of different ones. And, yeah. and there's still tax benefits for those as well. But people say, oh, nah, <laughs> I'm, I'm good. But that's because the education part of it, right? Showing but, why it makes sense, talking to people, trust, learning, right? Yeah. That's where people get stuck on it. I'd rather do myself rather than be an LP and limited partner and then pass it to someone else to handle it. But I think one challenge people don't uh, don't realize is what do you really want in life? Do you want to be active and do a lot of work, have another full-time job? Or do you want to become passive and make really good money and trust other people who are doing this full-time? Yeah, or both. I do both. <laughs> or both, right? Yeah, both is actually good too because you can learn from both sides. And I think even as when you do both, you actually realize, hey, here's my opportunities I'm doing actively. But as a passive investor, you're seeing multiple markets now. You're seeing how they run their syndications. You're seeing their numbers. You're seeing the property information. You can use that for your own active investing to help you make yours even better. Yeah. I mean, I use it a lot for, um, so even now I'm, I'm consistent, consistently investing passively in my deals and also in, in other deals. And, um, I really like looking at the investor relations and how they deliver the reports. And, you know, I take the stuff I like and I plug it into what we do. You are not yet. Yeah. I take the stuff that I don't like and I make sure we don't do that. <laughs> exactly. And you start vetting syndicators seeing you start seeing who's really performing really well at a high level and who's, you know, outperforming, right. And who under promises and over delivers and you start seeing who over promises and under delivers. So that's kind of nice to see too. And some people you can tell are really good marketers and that's about it. Some people are really good operators, but they're really not good marketers, you know? So finding yeah. that balance. And I see a lot of people nowadays doing fund to funds and as basically raising private equity to go into these bigger investments, right? Yep. I think that's another great opportunity that hasn't been discussed much. Um, we're actually writing a course on that right now. So we're writing a course on the difference between an active investor versus a fund to fund private equity and telling the differences of really the differences of what you really want, what's easier. And I think one thing we kind of diagnosed was that it, it if you're going to become an investor syndicator, why not start with a fund to fund first? Build your syndication network out, raise money for other bigger syndicators, watch how they grow because they already have the boots on the ground. They already been doing this for years. They already been raising money and you start vetting the syndicators out and in return, seeing both parties grow together and being able to do that. Then in the future day, when you're comfortable, you have your network now, then you can become an active investor syndicator and then use your active, your clientele uh, funds to go do active syndications. Yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not a bad idea. I definitely think, um, you know, you've got to vet out that that syndication team and, and um, because you're going to be trusting them with all your investors. So you, so you definitely need to take your time in doing that. But, um, yeah, it makes sense. I mean, when I started doing this, um, that was my weakest link was, was uh, 
raising equity. I hadn't done it before in the single family. We just had a couple private lenders and uh, we hadn't had to raise equity. Um, but, you know, I went all in from the beginning, but from what you're saying, that that's not a bad idea either. Yeah, going all in is nice too. Like I bought my first single family when I was 24 in San Francisco. I went all in and it was not easy because you have to, you know, live at home and you have to do a remodel, you have to, you know, move in, you have to do all this stuff and you have to get um, passive, you know, like house hacking, get tenants to come in with you, right? And like live with them. And you, but you know the fact that you're doing this, you're going to raise equity, you're getting rental income coming in, it's paying your mortgage, you're living for free and you just got to keep scaling it up, right? But when you go to the multi-units, like I bought my first multi-unit when I was 29 in San Francisco, that's been amazing. The passive income, the cap rates can be over 12% plus in San Francisco when you buy it at the right time, when you know your numbers, when you know that what's going to happen in the future for forecasting prediction and data, you know, then it, it becomes you know substantial, right? And that's just good opportunity, but it's not easy uh, to be an investor. And I think, you know, we talk about is the mindset to just start doing it right and like learning from people and asking questions and understanding more as you can right yeah I mean, I, you did a good thing you jumped in you know you jumped in you did construction you did single family you did you jumped into multi-units and now you jumped into investing syndications and you built a lot now you own you guys have you know over 1720 doors yeah uh, right around should be over 2000 dns okay. here Nice. And how did you guys get to that kind of scalability? Like what was the trigger that got you from the first door to over 2000 doors? Um, you know, I think we have co GPs on, on all our deals right now. Um, probably going to start taking some down next year, just us. But, um, you know, I think the networking, meeting those co GPs, um, making sure we're, bringing value to those um, partnerships. Um, yeah, and just focus. Like I said, you know, I, I, I stopped doing the single family altogether. I'm not saying that you have to, you know, if you're a single family investor that you have to stop doing it. Um, luckily, I still had the construction company. So, you know, multifamily is not something you're going to start making money day one. Like you've got to start building things up. You've got to start gain traction and um, really start doing deals. Uh, so I don't recommend having no income coming in and then starting multifamily. Um, but yeah, I, th I think focus for sure. I think you're using some key, uh, some really good words and uh, keywords and things to think about. One is focus, right? So I think, for 2021, all of us need to focus on what do we really want for ourselves, for our family, for our business, for our life, and how do we really want it to achieve it? And the hard part is focusing on it because we're so distracted by just life in general, COVID, 2020 being crap. For, mo for a lot of people, it's a punch in the face for everyone, you know, and just the way life has changed so quickly. But to realize that this might be the new norm, this might be how it's going to be. So you got to adapt quickly to the changes. You got to be more tech savvy, to be honest, right? You got to be focused. You got to have diligence in what you want to achieve and then go get it and spend your time learning, educating, uh, networking, and realizing what you want and come back to focusing it up on it again because everyone gets distracted by everything going on that you don't focus. You just like, the days fly by so quickly. It's already December 4th. Do you remember what you did in the whole year? Probably not as much as you could have done. And all of us promised for 2020, we're going to do a lot. But, you know, did we really all do that? No, we all got, we got, got hit in the face, right? 
yeah. and hopefully stay safe. But uh, yeah, you're right. Focusing on what you want. You got to be aware of what you're taking in too. you know, um, kind of kill the noise and stay focused. Um, I, you mentioned something I think that's very important too, is, is being able to adjust and flexible uh, to the market and just things happening in, in general. Um, if you look back, all the highly successful businesses had that, you know, they, they adjusted with the times. Look, I, I've been through, I went through 2008 and, and the crash and um, we quickly adjusted and, and, and made some moves. Um, and that's why we were able to continue to do real estate investing. Uh, so yeah, those, those companies that, that are slow to adjust and, um, haven't taken their whole business online and, and are kind of resisting, they're not going to survive. I mean, we've seen it. You can, in several businesses that have gone out of, out of business in the past couple of years. Yeah, I think some people hold on a little too long sometimes. Some people don't uh, readjust quickly enough or think that, oh, things will just go back to normal. It hasn't. It's been a year. People say, oh, yeah, remember first two weeks? It'll be gone in a month. It'll be fine, right? Yeah, it's been a year now. It's going to be a year, you know, and we'll still see what's going to happen. But hopefully they can survive because, you know, you're going to miss a lot of great businesses out there. Um, hopefully they can repivot and come back, uh, come back stronger. But uh, one thing, too, you, you know, to go from – single family to multi-unit and some parts of it is like how do you balance life your job investing in single family and then switching over to multi-unit and not giving up the income because the hardest part is letting go of something to go to the next one or trying to do both at the same time to adjust and slowly move over but when you know you take that time it takes a longer curve to get there yeah yeah i mean uh you know it was a tough decision when i decided i, was, I wasn't going to do single family anymore because um I kind of worked a long time to build that up and um, I just, I juggled it for, for a while and I just knew I wasn't going to succeed in any one of those unless I decided to, to focus on one. Um, and one thing I didn't mention is, you know, one of the reasons I made that transition too was for time, time with my family. My family's growing. We've got three beautiful i have three beautiful daughters they're under the age of seven all three of them um i want to be there for them i don't want to miss any important um things in their life and uh to me if i do this right and i build a team this is going to give me a lot more time than when i was running around doing 50 fix and flips a year and uh, yeah all that stuff yeah, 50 fix and flips a year that's a lot of work that's a huge overtaking over overtaking a lot of manpower to do that right and i'm glad that you realized for yourself for your family the time is the most valuable thing out there and to spend the time with your family and raising your kids you have three beautiful daughters you know that time is going to go so quickly you want to watch them grow up you want to go to their first dance their proms their life you want to be a part of it you want to be a great dad and be a part of their whole life and make sure you raise them so well that every guy has to you know step up to your level of care right and that's yep. gonna be you're gonna make it really hard for them to make sure you know and that's, that's the, the best way to do it i would say you know and I, I completely agree i think my focus for this year too is like really gaining back time how do you 
at increase your dollar per hour productivity and how do you learn to delegate further, faster, and let go of things you really shouldn't be doing. You know someone can do it better, cheaper, faster, so you can focus on what you want to do, which is, for example, for you guys, building up the syndication, building up the investing, you know, building the portfolio and getting the passive income, right? Yep. But that's a challenge. Most people, people are, are hard to they hard to go to each level and not willing to change or to adapt and to learn from others to you know educate to keep going up higher, right? That's the hardest part. And networking is a key to it because networking helps put you in the right mindset with great people who are already doing it, who might be help happy to help you and show you or guide you, you know? Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think uh, the hardest part of building a business is is that, you know, building out the, the systems and processes and putting together the team that allows you to um, really manage the business and not so much the day-to-day um to me that is the biggest where most businesses fail um is right there i think the part about it is too is a change like most most people's habits are uh not wanting to change you know how you look at that bell curve where you see innovators and you see laggers you know and most people take it at this midpoint where they're just kind of like waiting and they don't know what to do yet but they're waiting until the right time but they don't know when the right time is going to happen and all these other guys are just blowing it up you know and then the laggers are just behind they're so far behind they're not going to catch up and hopefully something just clicks in their head one day and they do and then they come up you know so that's the challenge too, like the 80-20 rule. You know 80% are not going to do what you want to do. You're not going to learn. You're going to show them everything, and they're still not going to do it. You hand them the keys, and they still won't do it. You know? Yeah, you got to take action. I mean, there's only so much uh, learning is good, and, and, and you know, knowledge is definitely power, but not if you don't take action. Yeah, it's all about execution, right? You know, they say um, there's some words like it's better to – instead of looking good, you got to just start executing, right? Just and you'll you'll fix you'll make it look good on the way you go through it, but you just start executing and you start improving it as you go along. You don't wait for perfection first and then start executing because you'll never be there. Right, you get stuck. That's, that's a challenge. So you know when you get into multi units, you guys started renovating. What kind of pit, common pitfalls do you guys see happening? Um, you know some of the things I see with other investors in in multifamily is um. I think they wait a little too long to to finalize their their scope of work on the capex. Um, usually, they wait till they close, and um, I feel like a lot of the time, a lot of time is lost. You know, we we spend a lot of time up front before we even uh, close on the property to kind of finalize everything. Okay, you know what? This is what we found during due diligence. This is the deferred maintenance and the items we've got to take care of. What are we going to take care of? What are what aren't we going to take care of? And then what exactly are we going to upgrade? How many units, which units um, should even start getting into the design? Okay. Well, you know, what colors, what this, what that. Um, and that way from day one, you're starting your, your CapEx and you're implementing your business plan from day one versus kind of waiting and spending months figuring that out. Um, doesn't make any sense to do that. Why do people delay and wait, you think? I think it's because um, they, they're they so busy trying to make sure that the deal closes, right? Um, raising the equity and, and the transactional stuff as far as the, the debt and this and that. Um, and that's just one of those things that kind of gets pushed aside. Oh, well, you know, we'll figure it out um, when we close. 
but uh, you know, if you're confident you're going to close, you might as well start working on that. <laughs> yeah, I would agree with you on that. I think one part of it first is like if you're a newer syndicator investor, then you're going to start smaller and just do what you can get done. And of course, as a self, you know, independent person. But if you have, if you slowly build out a team and you start delegating things out, these create that trust where one guy, one person is taking care of the financials, everything else. The next person is doing the, the design. They're thinking about the improvements. You know, add values. Then you can st- start doing that. Like. One example of, I sold a property, multi-unit property in uh, San Francisco. When the person got the buyer side agent and the team got into contract, they had a whole army come the next day. And the army was this interior designer, a stager, the contractor, the architect, uh, the electrician, everything. So they all came in one day and they took a look for a couple hours and reviewed the whole building. They said, okay, we got, we know exactly what we're going to do. Once we close this, boom, everything changes. They already planned it from day one of being in contract, not even removing contingencies. They know they're going to close. They have the money. So they're just utilizing that you know, 21 day window, 45 day window. And they're utilizing that for the seller to pay the interest, but they're using that timeline to go plan everything out. So on day one, the LLC is already open. Everything's ready. They're per- submitting permits and plans and going to construction. Yep. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. That's the amazing part too. And especially you guys, you have a construction team with it. You guys have the investors with it. You guys can do all that. And it just takes diligence and time and planning and focusing on the right thing. So you know upfront for your investor group, here's our execute our model, our execution. We're gonna start from day one. Here's the numbers and here's how we're gonna hit it. And you already know your cost. On top of that, you 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 don't underfund the deal either, which is last thing you want to do. Um uh, and I've seen that happen before too, you know, where they didn't take the time to to really look into how much it was going to cost for some of the repairs and upgrades and um, just using rule of thumbs or thinking they know how much it's going to cost. Um, and next thing they know, they're $500,000 short. Then what? That's true. That would be, a, you know, you, you would hate to do a call right afterwards for that additional funds from your group who you just told, hey, here's our numbers. Wait a minute. I need another 500K from you guys. I'm sorry. That doesn't look as good, you know? And some people just overestimate, but then you're carrying interest on the overestimation. If you're going to start pulling it, um, you can always pull it later. But at the same time, just I thought, hey, you asked me for $2 million. Now you only need a million. What happened there? You know, I, I could have used that money for somewhere else. You know? Yeah. That is the tough part about it, but it's nice to see that you guys can forecast the numbers up front, makes it a little bit better and it makes it a little more secure. Like, okay, based on your experience level and being a contractor yourself, we can kind of hold you up more accountable that you might, if you reviewed all the units, you can kind of get a better estimate of what it would really take to make happen. If you do your work, of course, due diligence throughout every unit and just take a rule of thumb is nice to have, but it's not always perfect by far. <laughs> okay um so what trends are you seeing right now in the multifamily investing space trends um like how's it in your area how's it in other markets you're in like what do you see in happening in the multifamily space uh, with and pre, pre-covid and with covid you know I'm, I'm definitely seeing uh the heavy lifts are not as um attractive as they were before um a lot of individuals looking for more cash flowing um some investors that that were really focusing on class c properties are now looking at more class b maybe even class a properties um and i think that obviously has a lot to do with covid um 
bridge financing has become more difficult. Terms aren't as attractive as they were. Um, you know, workforce housing, there's still a lot of concerns there as far as collections and, um, you know, as these cases keep growing, if there's going to be more shutdowns and um, where mainly those workers are coming from the workforce housing. So um, I think that's probably the, the biggest trend I've seen. Um, renovation wise, maybe even doing a little bit less renovations. I've seen that um, where before, you know, investors were really trying to hit the, the top of the market on the rents and, and doing major, major upgrades. Um, I've seen that kind of turn down a little bit. Yeah. And I think from what I've seen out there right now, I've seen a lot of investors who are focusing on class A's. They were actually, now they're being, being coming way more conservative. They're readjusting the vacancy factor. They're readjusting the rents to lower projections and they hope to, you know, they're not over promising. They're just trying to make it what it is with COVID and take that factors into play. But of course, hopefully they can over deliver in the future. Some mm -hmm. of them have really good occupancy rates of 96% plus some are 85 and some are way lower. It just depends on the market. Uh, workforce housing, it can be a concern, especially with COVID becoming more in a purple uh, color. And over time of all these businesses closing down and keep shutting down, then it becomes more scarier as a multi-unit investor in that space. And that's where we come, come back and talk about when you start going to bigger units of scalability, having 100 units, 400 units, then the concern can become way less than a 20 unit, right? If you had 50% people vacate a 20 unit, then you're gonna you know, be in a lot of pain versus a 400 unit and having 20, 50 people vacate. It's not too bad. You can kind of do that. And I see some some investors right now, they were renegotiating into the deals when they said, hey, COVID hit, I'm gonna change my vacancy factor number to 25% vacancy, even though you're at 897 right now or 87. Mm -hmm. and, and we're gonna readjust the pricing for that. And some sellers will say, okay, I, I get it, right? And they'll still sell it because they need to sell it. So then you're, you have a good opportunity to um, still be in a good point today, right? Yeah. I haven't seen as many uh, opportunities like that, like I thought there might be. Um, not that they're not coming. But, yeah. you know, I think they, they may still be coming. Um, there just hasn't been a ton of it. And yes, yeah, it's, it's tougher now. So you're doing way more due diligence. You're looking at the leases, the numbers, who's actually paying. But the good thing now in December, you have nine months of historic data of what's happened for that building. But that doesn't guarantee you next year, anyways. You don't. You don't. No one knows what's going to happen next year. Hopefully, a good vaccine works, comes out, and everyone gets it. How long will it take to get everyone? And some people might not take it. Right. Right. What will happen to the people who took it? Will it really, you know, prevent it? One hundred percent. Hopefully. So yeah. those are factors, right? You get that immunity, but um, yeah. I hope it's real immunity, you know? So like, are they gonna test it? Here's one guy who immune and then gonna stand next to these 10 guys who have COVID, you know, and see what happens. <laughs> yeah, I hope so though. I hope it become. I hope everyone gets taken care of. So, you know, when it comes to raising equity for your investment group, how do you guys go about like finding your investors? Um, you know, we spend, uh, we do quite a bit of, building our platform on, on social media. Um, we were doing a ton of networking before COVID, uh, still trying to do the online networking and um, doing a lot of podcasts, interviews and presenting whenever we can. Um, 
trying to think of what else. Uh, you know, we've uh, we've tried to do some different things as well, like uh, accredited investor list and 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 reach out to reach out to them. Um, and yeah, constantly doing more things online. Um, we've done some retargeting ads and and um, Facebook ads. We haven't done a, a ton yet, but I think that's something we may may increase in the future. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. And I, for any business out there, you know, we have to focus on marketing and sales is a part of it, but marketing is a huge part of it. And like telling your story, um, showcasing your company, your values, and why. You know, there's so many investors out there, so many syndicators out there. But like, why work with your company? Why put my money with your company? What's the difference between you guys and um, some other guy over there, right? How does that work? And understanding, like, what do you guys look for? What's your mission? What's your vision? What, what's the values? And telling that story and make it in a compelling way where people actually want to interact with you. And I think a great thing is, you know, you doing these podcasts, uh, just like mine and others. What happens is we're we're getting really getting to know you on a one-on-one -on -one basis and that when we talk to you, people have a really good understanding. And the reason I do podcasts a lot is because people can see behind the scenes, hey, here's how he, Matt thinks, here, here's how Horthy thinks, here's the questions they ask, here's the opportunities they look at, here's the things they don't look at, or you start seeing why they're choosing certain markets, why they're choosing certain types of investment vehicles and how they're forecasting that would make money. And when you start looking at other syndicators or investors who are not doing that, then you can say, why would I work with this guy? or a person they haven't, I don't know them as much as I know Jorge, right? right. That really comes into play. And the more you do it on social media and have a presence online through YouTube, through everything, and you're educating and providing value back for free, uh, the more people will actually want to work with you. And the more they trust you and you earn their business, right? Because you've given them so much value and things to look out for. Like, for example, hey, as an active, uh, as an active, or as a past investor, you want to invest in syndications, here's the five things you should look for in an operator bam, five things. And they go, wow, thanks, Jorge, for telling me that I didn't think about these five things I should look out for. And here's how we help you with all those five things. Here's what we look at it. And here's what we do for that. But you're doing it on so many different levels and so many different areas. Like here's, you know, construction, here's cost, here's uh, CapEx, here's lending, here's, um, you know, locations and things to look out for, right? As a contractor, here's all the things you want to watch out for from a contracting perspective. If you want to renovate, here's five things you should ask your contractor. Why are they always over time? Why do they not have a penalty for passing for five months, you know, things like that, right? How do you get them to pay a penalty? Yeah, no, I agree, man. I also focus a lot on, on documenting just what I'm doing in general. You know, if I'm out uh, doing a due diligence on a property, I'm, I'm going to do some Facebook Live videos. I'm going to document it one way or another. Um, and I'm also not going to try to do it super professional either. You know, I want to show the real the real me and, and what we do. Um, and I think that helps. You know, I've gotten... I get better feedback from the worst videos I've done, like quality wise and, 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 and whatnot than I do from if I have somebody do a professional video. Uh, so yeah. You're right. Those are the best. And like um, Gary Vaynerchuk says, you know, just document everything you're doing and make it public and people can see behind the scenes, they get to know you and they see the real truth behind, you know, the real estate, right? That's the way better way than making making everything professional. And we tell people that, but they like get so caught up in the, I need to make it look good. I'm like, no, you don't. You need to tell a story. What's the story? 
I'm doing a, you know, I'm taking a look at a property, do my due diligence. Here's things we're looking at. Wow, I can't believe they did this to the property. You know, we need to fix that. Here's how much we think it's going to cost in the time, but it's worth it because X, right? So yeah. I'm glad you're doing that. And I think that really matters telling the story, showing behind the scenes, putting it all over different platforms of social media getting people to understand it and you actually create a natural following from that like even from this podcast i'm like i would not have known all these top uh realtors are actually watching my podcast you know over and over and like they've seen so many episodes I'm like really you guys are so busy you guys are doing this no, but they still these guys are great people who want to learn and they still want to improve and they still want to meet other people and they still want to network and they want to be a part of it right so it's an amazing part of it where you can um, explore different areas markets uh, globally and talk to different people and I think this is a great thing, like, for example, having you on this podcast, we're learning about you, we're learning about your business, the syndication, the investing, construction, we're learning about Dallas, Oklahoma, different markets. But without these podcasts, you know, who, who can really hear you, right? Yeah. yeah. And ours is on Facebook and YouTube live, too. So you can, you know, it's going to be all over the place and just keep building and scaling it. So that's the part of the scalability, scaling your business and over opportunity over time. And people, the more network effect you create by having different opportunities and resharing, the bigger it gets in total, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you can tap into others' networks and, you know, they tap into your network, you tap into theirs, then, yeah, the growth really starts happening. Perfect. And, you know, we're about to wrap it up. And I want to ask you, too, where do you guys see yourself in the next five years? What's the go What's the goals? What's the plans? Uh, next five years. So five year plan is, um, you know, I want to, I want to keep growing multifamily portfolio. I want to take it to uh, above 20,000 units by that time. Um, probably also bring in property management for sure in house. And then, um, possibly some other functions that kind of tie into the multifamily, um, not sure what, but I'm sure I'll think of something else. <laughs> so you're basically creating an ecosystem then. So if you're going to have construction in-house, you're going to have the investing in-house, you're going to have marketing, you're going to have property management, then you're building an in-house solution that has a higher standard or standard of care, right? Yep. Yep. You got to be able to, um, you know, really implement our, our vision without having to hire third parties and, um, and, that's it, you know, have a, have a great team around me to where I can still spend the time with the family, like I mentioned, um, and uh, hopefully just popping into a few meetings, checking out a few properties, and uh, that's it. I would say that's kind of like Apple's model of how they, you know, when they start building, they slowly bring everything in-house and they, they keep upping the quality level so high that it makes it so much harder for uh, competition. But at the same time, you're just growing your own services. You're not really caring about competition. You're just improving yourself day to day and making the standards so high that people just want to work with you no matter what. Yeah, I agree. I like that. So how can people reach out to you and like, what are you looking for for investors? Um, they can reach out. You know, we constantly updating our, our website we've got a ton of free content on there and um that's elevatecig.com um as far as what we're looking for you know we're always looking for for passive investors those that are um are looking to place their funds somewhere else an alternative investment and um and then uh we also do a lot of co-gping you know we have investors that are looking to get started or just 
I mean, we have some seasoned investors too that just want to bring in another GP to help with CapEx or help with whatever it is. Um, so we're always open to that. Um, yeah. Perfect. Yeah. So be sure to reach out to Jorge at elevatecig.com uh, to learn more and, you know, keep watching the opportunities you're bringing along and the education you're bringing. I appreciate that. I love education. I love seeing more value to the community and then we can just keep resharing and building um, and networking, right? Yep. Cool. So, hey guys, thanks so much for being on the Truth About Real Estate podcast. We'll see you guys in the next one. Um, have a great day.